All right, today we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-12, through 12, and we're going to see what it's like living the good life, according to Peter. The question is, do you want to live the good life? I, w- I would probably say most people would say, yeah, sure, I want to live the good life. But the question is, how do you define the good life? What is the good life? That's always an interesting question. Have a conversation with someone on that one sometime. And I was doing some research this week. I'm using quotation marks around research to find out what is the world saying about the good life. And if you want to do that, Google's always an interesting place. The Internet gives you all kinds of interesting stuff to ponder. And I came across this website called thoughtco.com, and they said that the good life can be understood in at least four ways. Uh, Sometimes we only think of the good life in in one aspect, but uh, I found this a little helpful to understand the world's way of thinking. So the, the first thing that they said is, you can think of the good life in regard to the moral life. Uh, one basic way in which we use the word good is to express moral approval. And so when we say that someone is living well or that they have lived a good life, we may simply mean that they're a good person. They possess, they practice many of the most important virtues And they don't spend all their time just merely pursuing their own pleasure, but they devote at least a certain amount of time to activities that are actually benefiting other people. So that's what they mean by the moral life. Uh, You can, according to thoughtco.com, you can understand the good life in, in regard to the life of pleasure. So the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus was one of the first to declare that What makes life worth living is you can experience pleasure. Pleasure is enjoyable. In other words, it's fun. It's pleasant. The view that pleasure is the good or that pleasure is what makes life worth living is known as hedonism. Uh, Today, hedonistic, uh, this hedonistic conception of the good life, by the way, is arguably what is the predominant thing we see in Western culture. Uh, Even in everyday speech in Western culture, somebody might say that someone is living the good life. And in fact, when I did a Google image search on the good life, uh, that's an interesting experience in and of itself. I found pictures like people lounging in their chairs, drinking something, you know, just enjoying beautiful views. And they think that's the good life. So this, this is the life of pleasure. You know, if somebody says they're living the good life, you'll often see things of, uh, you know, people might be lounging by the pool in the sun with a cocktail in their hand and some beautiful partner with them. That's what a lot of people think. So what is the key to that hedonistic conception of the good life? It's, uh, it's an emphasis on subjective experiences. And on this view, to describe a person as happy, it means they feel good. <laughs> a happy life is one that contains many feel-good experiences. So that's one view. A third view of the good life is the fulfilled life. Again, 
the, the Greek thinkers on this have kind of had a big influence on us. Aristotle was a Greek thinker, and uh, his view of the good life is more comprehensive than Epicurus. According to Aristotle, we all want to be happy. We value many things because they're the, they're the means to other things. For example, uh, why do we value money? Well, maybe, maybe you don't, okay? But when I say we, I'm just painting with a really broad brush here. But why do often many people value money? Because it's, money isn't the end for them. It's what can they do with that money, right? It enables you to buy things you want and to, to do things you want. And so we value leisure because it gives us time to pursue our interests. We, and so that's what some people think of happiness as. And so happiness is something we value not as just a, a means to some other end, but we, we value it for its own sake. In other words, it has tr- intrinsic value just rather than an instrumental value. Uh, and so for Aristotle, anyway, the good life is the happy life. And the last one is the meaningful life. In ancient times, the definition of good fortune was you had lots of children and uh, therefore you do well for yourself. But obviously there can be other sources of meaning in a person's life. You can still have meaning and not have children. Uh, For example, you can pursue a particular kind of work with great dedication. A lot of people find meaning in their life through that. Uh, It it might be through scientific research. It might be through uh, some, some artistic creation. It might be through scholarship, just to name a few. Uh, Some people devote themselves to a cause, such as maybe fighting against racism. Uh, Some people want to protect the environment, and they find great meaning in that. Uh, They might uh, be thoroughly engaged in their community. That's not a bad thing. Uh, You know, maybe it's it's, uh, some club. Maybe it's church. Maybe it's a soccer team or school or whatever, right? Whatever their community is, they get involved in that and they find great meaning in that. And the article from ThoughtCo.com, it ended with this statement, quote, a truly good life is one that is both enviable and admirable in all or most of the ways outlined above, end quote. So all, all four of those things is, uh, is how they were thinking of, of the good life. And so for most people, particularly in Western society, pursuit of the good life is what it's all about. For them, it's just chasing after objects of self-gratification. You know, whatever that might look like, their money, uh, nice houses, fast cars, fun holidays, fine clothes, gourmet food, uh, you know, amazing sports, exciting entertainment, you know, those are the sort of things a lot of people chase after. Sometimes that pursuit for the good life might include other things, unbiblical, ungodly things. But the sad reality is that such things are just a a, a mere temporal thrill. They don't last. So they're just like chasing the wind, chasing, you know, the dog chasing its tail. Well, here's some good news for, for you from the book of Peter. See, the Bible's encouraging because the Bible tells us Christians should love the life that God has granted to them. 
We're to enjoy the goodness that God has given to us and enjoy it day by day. Sadly, many do not, though. Peter recognized that we're not exempt, by the way, uh, from difficulties that can sometimes steal our joy. And we saw in chapter 2 of Peter here that Christians are identified as aliens in an aggressively hostile society. Uh, you know, persecution, suffering, trials are a part of living in an ungodly world, in an ungodly environment. But in spite of that suffering, Peter addresses the believer here as someone who desires to love life and see good days. You can see that in 1 Peter 3, verse 10, where he quotes from Psalm 34. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. We're going to see expand on that in a moment here. But that's what Peter's talking about. So Peter addresses the believer here as somebody who is desiring this good life, and he's instructing him on how to realize that desire. And I want you to notice before we read this, that the text in verse 8 starts with the word finally. So as we read this, just bear in mind that word finally is introducing a new section for us. We've, we go all the way back into chapter 2. It's been talking about submission in various areas of our lives. Uh, and now Peter's going to give us some exhortation on the good life living in a, in a hostile culture. So as we read verses 8 and 9 here, Peter is, is really giving us an, an exposition of Psalm 34, well, part of Psalm 34, uh, and he's going he's gonna to quote from Psalm 34 there in verses 10 through 12. And so Peter begins this particular section by constructing his thoughts around three exhortations that are coming from Psalm 34. So just bear that in mind as we, we start reading in verse 8 of 1 Peter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So here's the proposition coming from our text today. That God wants you to live the good life by keeping your tongue from evil, by turning away from evil and doing good, and by seeking peace. So there's your, your three points that Peter is bringing out. You say, what is the good life? Well, according to Peter in Psalm 34, that is the good life. So how, how to live the good life according to Peter in Psalm 34? Well, here's your first exhortation coming from verse 10. Peter says, to keep your tongue from evil. Keep your tongue from evil. And then, Peter is, is pointing, as he, as he gives an exposition of Psalm 34, 
he points us to verse 8 here and he tells us, he gives us a list of Christian characteristics that will help keep our tongues from evil. And Peter gives five points. Five points that will keep your tongue from evil. So look at verse 8. The first thing he says is, what's going to keep your tongue from evil is unity of mind. Unity of mind. That's what verse 8 says. By the way, that is more a call for unity of disposition, generally speaking, than uniformity of, of opinion. Peter's not saying we all have to think alike. We all have to do exactly the same thing. We don't all have to wear the same clothes and do the same things and think exactly the same way. That's not what he's telling us. The reality is Christians will not agree on everything. Even spouses don't agree on everything. Uh, so it can't be referring to just a, a, agreeing on all the minute, small details, but it's referring to a unity on the, the major and important points of Christian doctrine and practice. There's a saying that I learned, it's not original with me, uh, that, that I found really helpful. It goes like this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, love. My experience, most church issues are over non-essentials. Issues in the family are usually over non-essentials, Right? Why do people leave churches, church splits, usually over non-essentials? People turning the non-essentials into essentials. God's saying we, we shouldn't do that. Unity is an inner unity of attitude that makes division and mutiny within the body of Christ should be something that's unthinkable within the body of Christ. By the way, it doesn't mean that the church is never going to have a difference of opinion. Of course we will. It, it's okay to have a difference of opinion. But what's not okay is to have different theology. right? We, we can't disagree on who Christ is, what's the gospel, what is the scripture, right? those sort of things. We can't disagree on that. There has to be unity because those are essentials. But it, it is okay to have difference of opinion. That you're going to have that. So the issue here is, how do we handle those differences? Are we going to love each other in spite of those differences? So we have to live and minister together so that our differences don't divide us, but actually serve to enrich us, enrich our lives, enrich the ministry and the work that we have. See, God has made us all different. Different members of His body with different spiritual gifts. We all have different personalities, different strengths, different weaknesses. God has designed it that way so that, that we can be stronger, not weaker, as a result of that. So diversity actually makes us stronger. Okay, We, we need to have that correct thinking. Otherwise, you just have a lot of infighting. So let's strive for unity in the midst of our diversity. So unity of mind is going to help keep your tongue from evil. But number two, sympathy is the second thing Peter says. This primarily is referring to a fellow feeling, if you will, between a brother Christian. And by the way, it can refer to not just our sorrows, but also our joys. 
The Bible says elsewhere, you're to weep with those who weep. You are to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. I don't know how God made you, but sometimes people who are able to weep with someone who's weeping have a hard time rejoicing when someone's rejoicing. If something good happened in their life, you, you, we, we might get jealous. We might become covetousness. We might get a little grumpy. Like, oh, why did, why did they get that and I don't? You know, right? We have a hard time with that. Or if you're the kind of person who might find it easy to rejoice when, when something good is happening in, in another believer's life, you might have the opposite problem. You, you might have a hard time being sympathetic with someone when they're weeping. Maybe, maybe they lost a loved one, for example, and you just, you just don't know what to do. You, you can't sympathize. God says we're to be able to sympathize during the good and the, the bad. It takes a lot of grace to rejoice with another saint when God has blessed them and, and He hasn't given you that same blessing. It takes a lot of grace to have the right heart attitude, doesn't it? But it also takes a lot of grace from God to be able to weep with another Christian who is weeping. They're sorrowful over something that's happened to them. And so we must strive to feel our brother's pain as well as their joy. And if we have the sympathy, then it's going to help keep our tongue from evil. But if we don't, then it's very easy, becomes very easy for us to lash out with that tongue. Number three, uh, in order to keep our tongue from evil, we need brotherly love, according to verse eight. This brotherly love is a phileo kind of a love. It, it's the human affection that we're to have for one another as spiritual brothers and sisters. It makes a big difference when you see yourself as all part of the same family. You're all brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're a believer, if you're in Christ, then, then, then you're part of God's family. And you must then consider, well, how does God's family treat each other? Do they, do they use their tongue for evil? No. <laughs> God wouldn't be pleased if his children are attacking each other with their tongues. And so, so recognize that you, as a Christian, belong to a very large family. And the tongue is there for honoring God, glorifying God, and building up, ministering grace to the hearer. Number four, having a tender heart will also help your tongue to not spit out evil. So the, the tender heart there in verse 8 is, is depicting a warm attitude. It's an affectionate sensitivity toward the needs of others. Uh, see, here's the problem. If your heart is not warm, if it's cold, then your tongue is probably going to be speaking evil. After all, what did Jesus say? It's out of your heart that your mouth speaks. And so what do we have to do then? We have to guard our hearts. Because it, it, that's the foundation from the heart is where, where the evil speaking's coming from. And so it's our, really our thoughts that are going to shape the way that we speak and we live. Proverbs addresses this as well, by the way. Proverbs in chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So keep your heart, guard your heart, protect it. 
It's, uh, that's, that's the foundation for your words. And then uh, the last point that Peter mentions here in, is, uh, he says, have a humble mind. Have a humble mind. See, you're not going to be able to stop your tongue from evil unless you are humble. Humility is the opposite of one who is proud, one who is arrogant. Uh, someone who is humble is not going to be bragging about themselves. Somebody who is bragging is usually uh, lifting up themselves in the process of lifting themselves up, making themselves look good. They tend to tear people down, rip them to shreds with their tongues. But somebody who has a humble mind is rejoicing in the successes of others, is able to help other people, minister grace to the hearer. So to live the good life, Peter, first of all, tells us that you must keep your tongue from evil. Keep your tongue from evil. Then Peter goes on to address a second point that needs to be made. In verse 11, he says, Turn away from evil and do good. Notice the principle of replacement here in point two. So you have to turn from the evil, but that's not enough. You have to replace that evil with doing good. So the second exhortation is really foreshadowed in verse 9. Peter's elaborating on the psalm. Psalm 34 there is, is mentioned in verse 11. So he says, let him turn away from evil and do good. So verse 9 is, is the comparison of Peter telling us, how do we do that? In verse 9 he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So that's what you don't do. What should you do? But he says, on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So turning from the evil here is, requires that we not retaliate when we're particularly experiencing persecution and suffering. When our hostile culture comes against us. You're, you're, it, the natural human sinful response is to retaliate, lash out in words and action. But what did Christ teach us to do? I'll give you some scriptures here from Matthew 5, verse 38. Jesus taught us, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's Jesus' teaching from Matthew 5, what we often call the Sermon on the Mount. So what, what is Peter telling us here in verse 9? Rather than retaliating when you're treated in a hostile way, believers are to respond with good. You overcome evil with good. That's what Romans tells us. 
In other words, Peter says, give a blessing. Instead of retaliating and lashing out with tongue or deed, give a blessing instead. Now that word there in Peter, where the word blessing is an interesting word. We, we get an English word from the Greek word. So this might be helpful to you, I hope. Anyway, the English word is eulogy. You'll see the word eulogy kind of in the Greek word. Of course, eulogies are often given at funerals. It just means to praise or to speak well of other people. And so Peter's exhortation here is speak well of other people. When you're insulted, speak well of that person. Instead of retaliating, praise the person. You can always find something to praise them about. Uh, your, your temptation, is probably as mine is, to be sarcastic, though, uh, instead of giving a genuine praise. Uh, I'll just give you an example of sarcasm. It's probably not the best way to respond. I remember some guy was yelling and swearing at me one time. He was in my face just yelling and swearing and saying nasty things about me. So I was like, Whoa, okay. Soft answer. I was thinking of Proverbs, right? Soft answer turns away wrath. Okay, the first thing that came to my mind is, wow, you have a really loud voice. Like, <clears throat> I was being sarcastic when I said that. I was trying to respond in a godly way, and that's probably not the best way to do it, right? So, you know what I mean. That's that's our temptation. Even when even when we're trying to be our best, it it, it cannot come across right. But but Peter's saying you turn away from the evil and do good. Give a blessing. Praise that person. Speak well of the person. So Peter's exhortation suggests some practical applications here. Let me just give you a few things to think about. How can I bless someone when? when I don't feel like it, <laughs> right? When I'm being attacked, my God's being attacked, how, how can I do this? Well, you, you can bless people by loving them unconditionally. Unconditionally. It doesn't matter if they, in other words, they don't need to love you in return. It doesn't matter what they can do for you. You, you love them unconditionally. Another thing to think about is you, you can bless by praying for the salvation, if it's an unbeliever, pray for their salvation. That's, that's a blessing. You can pray for the sanctification of a fellow believer. Unfortunately, fellow believers can also be rather nasty sometimes. But pray for them. You can express gratitude for them. Sarcasm's not usually the best way to do that. And then you can also, of course, forgive those who persecute you just as Jesus did, right? Just as we've seen others in Scripture do. Like, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So to live the good life, you must turn away from evil and do good. But Peter also gives us a third exhortation. In verse 11, he says, Seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, peace here, by the way, means agreement between people uh, that is what harmony is all about harmony is not uniformity harmony is when you have differences but they're all working together they're in agreement like like a 
like a symphony orchestra. Right? They're not all playing the instrument, playing the same line of music, but they're all working together in harmony. That's the way God's people are to be. Now that doesn't happen naturally, because we have a hard time dealing with people who are different, who aren't exactly like us. We're, we struggle with that, and so it, it requires God's grace. But nevertheless, God tells us here to pursue peace. That's an interesting word. I, I like it because it's a hunting word. It's a hunting term. It's so, in other words, the idea is you pursue this peace with intensity, determination, and persistence. It's like deer hunting for me. When I go out in the bush, it's not easy. It takes a lot of determination and intensity and persistence because you can't just you know, show up in the bush and a deer walk across your path, and then you go home. It's not that easy. You you have to do a lot of walking. Uh, you know, if it's during a roar, it's a lot of calling, and sometimes you go home with nothing. It's just a lot of effort, and nothing happens. And that, and that's this idea of of you're pursuing this peace. You say, well, what's the point? Well, believers are to have as their goal and their calling here to pursue peace. Be determined in this. Pursue it with intensity and persistence. How? Well, peace is pursued here by, according to verse 9, by returning a blessing. So when insult is given, you don't return that with an insult. You return the insult with a blessing. You speak well of that person. So to live the good life, we must seek peace and pursue it. And you say, man, oh, that's the good life? <laughs> that, well, that's, that's not uh, much anything like what we just talked about earlier from the world's perspective. The world's perspective is really different from God's perspective on the good life. So uh, that, oh, that doesn't sound very nice. Why should I live the good life according to God's perspective? Well, that's verse 12. Here's... Here's why you should live the good life. Look at verse 12. God says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Three points from verse 12. Okay. First, Peter is, of course, quoting Psalm 34, and he says that the Lord takes personal notice toward those who are righteous. By the way, a righteous person is just one who's trying to do right according to God's standard. And Peter says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Now God doesn't have physical God the Father at least doesn't have physical eyes, figurative language here. In other words, the eyes of the Lord are relating to God's caring watchfulness over his people. It's indicating God's all-knowing awareness of every detail in your life, right? Jesus said God even knows how many hairs are on your head, right? So that's God's all-knowing awareness of details in your life. In other words, what the psalmist is saying, what Peter is saying, is God knows and God cares what's going on in your life. In other words, He knows when you're insulted. He knows when you're tempted to retaliate in an ungodly way. He knows all that stuff. He knows your thoughts, your words, your actions. And guess what? They're not going to go unnoticed. 
and they will not go unrewarded. God will reward the righteous. And so, for that reason alone, that that should be enough to live the good life according to God's standard. But he goes on. Number two, Peter says that the Lord hears the righteous. God hears our prayers 24-7. He's never on holiday. The switchboard is always working, so to speak. And knowing that God is always watching, always ready to answer our prayers, should give us great confidence that to, to live this kind of life that God wants us to live, to live the good life. Because He knows when we suffer, when we're going through trials, when this hostile culture is against us. And when, when it is, when you're finding yourself struggling, you can pray. You can know that God's going to hear. He's going to answer your prayer. By the way, sometimes God answers prayers with no's. Sometimes it's a wait. We don't, we don't always get answers to prayer with a yes. So just bear that in mind. So, good news. The Lord hears the righteous. But the third thing we need to be aware of, of why to live the good life, is this. That the Lord is personally against the wicked. So sometimes we're tempted to think, oh man, these, these wicked people are getting away with it. How dare they insult God and me as one of His children? Oh, we get a little, uh, little hot under the collar. We get a little frustrated. We don't understand why everything's happening. But it's helpful to understand the Lord is personally against those people. Vengeance is not mine. <laughs> no, that's God's words. All right? God said vengeance is His. And so I don't have to worry about those wicked people, no matter what they do to me, what they say to me, because God is going to deal with them. He knows, He cares, and He's going to take vengeance out on them. And so because of those three reasons here, Peter says, this is why you need to live the good life. But remember, Peter is quoting from Psalm 34. That's what the text here is is about in verses 10 through 12. And so with that in mind, I I think it would be helpful to get more of the general context of of chapter 34, Psalm 34. Would you please turn there? Let's just draw out a few things from Psalm 34 that will help maybe fill in a few gaps for us. So Peter is quoting in in verses 10 through 12 from Psalm 34. And I want you to notice the title, which kind of gives us the context. So Psalm 34's title says this, it is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who is a, a king of the Philistines, so that he drove him out. The king of the Philistines drove David out, and then he went away. So David was going through a hard time in his life here. So David's writing this psalm because he didn't want to become ungrateful. As you're about to see here, we'll read in a moment, David's expressing his thanksgiving to God. Uh, Specifically, he's thanking God for rescuing him from life-threatening situations. Pressures in his life were very real. 
they were getting, as far as David was concerned, the pressures of life were getting bigger and heavier, harder to deal with, driving him to the point of despair. I mean, he had to leave his homeland. He's, he has to get away from King Saul. He has to go to his enemy, the Philistines, because Saul's trying to kill him. Essentially, he had a very noisy soul, but David was able to call upon the Lord. He's able to transfer his trust from himself to God, and and he found help with his fears in God. And Yahweh delivered him out of his desperate situation. He found himself in the clutches of his enemy here, Abimelech, a king of the Philistines, and he's he's able to get out of this situation and, and praise God despite that. So with that in mind, that little introduction, look at Psalm 34. And I want you to notice how David is describing life despite the hardship here. Psalm 34 is describing what God means by the good days. And by the way, the good days, I want you to notice as we read various things that David had to deal with in his life. Uh, Good days are not necessarily problem-free. The psalmist wrote, for example, in verse 4, he talks about his fears. Uh, Verse 6, troubles. Verse 19, afflictions. And then in verse 18, he had a broken heart. So just bear in mind that the good days include these things sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. So with that in mind, look at Psalm 34, verse 1. The psalmist says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. So again, just please take notes. 
verse 4, 6, 18, and 19, that sometimes the good days, according to the Bible and according to God, include problems. Things like fears, troubles, afflictions, a broken heart. A good day for the believer, at least one who, according to the psalmist, one who loves life, is not one in which he is pampered and sheltered and and, and everything is a so-called bed of roses, because even in beds of roses there are thorns. But it is one in which he's experiencing God's help. You experience God's blessing through these afflictions, through these troubles, and through your fears. God enables you to live the good life through life's problems and trials. And so it's a day, as you'll notice here, Notice on the next slide here, it's a day in which this kind of a person who is blessed by God is able to magnify the Lord. Now that doesn't, make, that doesn't mean you make God look bigger than what He is, because you can't do that. But when you're magnifying God, it's, it's making God, attempting to make God look as big as He really is. Our problem is we... We tend to shrink God down, and then we magnify our problems. We magnify ourselves and make God smaller than what He really is. And so this kind of a person, though, is magnifying God, attempting to show Him to be as big as He really is. But notice it's in verses 4 to 7, you're experiencing answers to prayer. Even in the midst of your fears, afflictions, and troubles. You're also, according to verse 8, tasting the goodness of God. Sometimes we don't taste God's goodness until we go through an affliction. Because the afflictions also often bring out and magnify God for us. And then in verse 18, this is a day in which this person is sensing the nearness of God. Have you noticed that to be true, that when you're going through some fear or affliction or suffering, persecution, you, you can sometimes feel very, very near to God. It, it's, it's just hard to explain, isn't it? It's like God is, you know, you know this truth, right? As a believer, the, the Holy Spirit indwells you. You already know that anyway. But sometimes you don't feel that way, right? I, you struggle with the feeling matching up with your belief, right? But sometimes when, when you're going through an affliction like the psalmist, as he says in verse 18, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Ever felt that way? I hope you, I hope you feel that. If you've never felt that, I hope you do feel that sometime. It's very precious. You know, I, I don't. I don't wish bad things to happen to you, but it is a precious thing when you are able to sense that nearness. And so, the next time you are having a bad day, and you you feel like you know, I just kind of hate life. May I suggest you read Psalm thirty-four? And and sometimes when we read the Psalms, I find this to be true. You discover you're actually really having a good day according to God's view and. And I'm able to glorify God through this so-called bad day, which is really a good day. Perspectives.
can change when, they're, when we meditate on truth. <laughs> and so here's, again, the proposition for you to ponder. That God wants you to live the good life. Well, what is the good life? You live the good life by keeping your tongue from evil, by turning away from evil and doing good, and by seeking peace. May God enable us to live His life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this perspective on life. May we see things the way You see them, at least a little bit. I know we'll never have uh, totally Your perspective, but please at least give us this kind of a perspective. We need Your grace to do that. We're so tempted to be distracted by our own circumstances or by our culture or various things that are happening in our lives, our fears, our afflictions, our troubles, our broken hearts. And so may we experience answers to prayer. May we magnify you, taste your goodness, taste your nearness, as the psalmist here is expressing. So may we understand what really is the good life. May we not think of it as just pampering ourselves or being sheltered from problems, but instead have this kind of a view. Give us your view on life, we pray. May we please you with our lives in the midst of a hostile culture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.